our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive and to have this chance to gather together once again as your children, as your adopted ones. We're grateful, Father. We don't know the last day of our lives, but we know that you've given us this one right now. We ask that you appreciate this time. Help us appreciate this time. Help us hear your special message for us today and help us live in the now as you've been telling us. And Father, most of all, we're grateful and thankful that you sent your son 2,000 years ago to fully take away our sins once for all with no doubt, with nothing left behind, nothing left to be done for salvation. We are so grateful that you took care of it once for all. Father, we ask that you bless this message, that you guide us and teach us by your Holy Spirit, and have us be humbled before you with open minds and open hearts. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. All right, well, as we uh, close out this series, uh, we begin to close out this series, we'll see how long it goes, on repentance, we're going to review a few key points from Sunday, and we'll start with the fact that it's so important to have the right perspective, and how the right perspective can really save you sometimes. You probably all know what I'm talking about at certain points in your life where you really needed a perspective change or a shift. You really were looking at things the wrong way and somebody maybe uh, helped you or your pastor helped you or a lesson helped you or reading your Bible. Something made something click and you were really desperate in your soul, if you know what I mean. There's times that we doubt, that we, um, I guess desperate is the only word that comes to mind. You know, I've had personal experiences with it from time to time and sometimes you're in, in a rut or something. So the right perspective can really save you. And this is why we're, we have to be in the Word every day. First of all, so we don't get into that rut, hopefully, in the first place. But second of all, we can catch ourselves. The Word catches us. The Spirit catches us, changing our perspective. So it's when we go into something with the wrong perspective that things get complicated and confusing. Yet if your mind is set on Christ's perspective, on His singular concern of saving mankind and bringing them to eternal life, then the big picture sets in for you. All right, let me just say that again. If your mind is set on Christ's perspective, which we talked a lot about on Sunday, how uh, concise it is, how singular it actually is, saving mankind and bringing them to eternal life. If you uh, adopt his perspective on life, the big picture is going to set in for you and give you peace and give you answers without confusion. And you can sit back and hold on to the big picture while you're reading any piece of scripture, while you're living life, while you're going through certain battles. You can hold on to the big picture. You can hold on to the perspective. The minute we lose the big picture, we usually lose our perspective. You know, you get, you get so myopic on a particular problem you're going through that you forget about 
why this might be going on. You forget about who's watching you. And then you forget about the biggest picture of all, right? To bring glory to God in whatever we do. So you got to be careful not to be so uh, focused on the problem that you lose the big picture or we suffer. And so the Spirit has reminded us again to hold on to the right perspective. Hold on to Christ's perspective. How did Jesus get through a lot of his battles? He always had the singular purpose of God's plan in his, in his mind. He never lost that big picture. So sometimes things won't even bother you that normally would bother you because you're looking at the big picture. So just think about that and, and how, how we need to hold on to it. The Spirit has given us how we can live in the now. We've been talking about learning to live in the now. The more we begin to live in the gospel, sharing it, living for others even, the more we realize why each day is so precious to God. How do we live in the now? We live for the gospel and we live for others. And we've all experienced the peace when we finally take our eyes off ourselves and we place them on somebody else. And that, you know, you might look at that as a physical thing, like not just talking about uh, the eyes of your soul, what you're thinking. Picture it physically. When you take your eyes off yourself and stop looking in the mirror and examining yourself and you put your eyes on somebody else and their problems or you put your eyes on the Lord and rest them there, your problems dissipate. It's not a coincidence that God designed it that way. So the more we live in the gospel and share it and live for others, the more we realize why every day is precious to God, the more we live in the now and bring Him glory in the moment. We saw the basic primitives in these verses on the board. In Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save. Matthew 28.19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all men to be saved. It doesn't get any more basic than that, does it? So we don't have to search anymore. We don't have to like wonder what God has for us. This is what God has for us. And thank God it's that simple. We're going to talk about that more today. But these basic primitives cut back all the bushes for us, so to speak. And they open up the trail. They open up our vision to the trail before us, to stay on that trail. And these basic primitives on Sunday, as we were going over these, they reminded me of the narrow gate. Even our purpose is narrow, we might say but in a good way. It's focused. It's pristine. It's pure. It's saving souls. It's uh, living for others, just exactly how Christ lived for others. It's so simple. We remember that Jesus said he is the way. And isn't it refreshing? Isn't it refreshing is the only word I could think of. Isn't it nice to know that there is only one way? that we're not searching for two or three other ways just in case we're missing something. There's none of that, thank God. He did all the work, the hard work, on the cross. And he said, okay, now here's the way. I'm the way. There's no confusion. This is why you've been created. So now follow me. And it's not the American way, as we talked about on Sunday. 
at least not anymore, because it's largely now in our country all about selfishness and building one's own kingdom, not honoring God's kingdom. So Jesus is the way, and how about that, like for how we live in the now? Instead of complicating it, or um, being too introspective even, Jesus is the way. Live in that. We were encouraged on Sunday with some godly perspective. Godly perspective is actually easier to understand than any other alternative. Our God is not a God of confusion who overcomplicates spiritual matters. Isn't that great? Our God, from a fleshly point of view, should be someone who overcomplicates matters. He's brilliant. He's genius. He has all knowledge. Why doesn't he come down and say, let me show you how smart I am, and if you can't keep up with me, the heck with you. Why did Jesus come for the worst of us instead of the best of us? I was thinking about that before class. Most kings, like if, if you visit a foreign land, let's say, what do you look for? The best people, the people that can help you the most, the people that, um, I don't know, give you the most advantage. But our Lord's not like that. And he's not a God of confusion who overcomplicates spiritual matters. Contrarily, the kingdom of darkness specializes in complexity, beginning with a different gospel in 2 Corinthians 11.4. So the point came out on Sunday, and I hope it's truer and truer for each of you, each of us, that once you have the true gospel of Jesus Christ down pat, then reading the Bible is no longer a chore but it, it can be a joy every single day. I hope it's truer for a lot of you. I know some of you that couldn't read the Bible before and now are reading it every day and, and enjoying it, who had great difficulty before and are now reading it every day and are like, you know, it's just wonderful. And I don't get it all, but it's just, it's awesome. So wh where does that come from? It comes from a perspective change. Number one, on the gospel that we've learned, that the, the more full gospel, if you will, um, not having confusion anymore even about the Lord's own words in the four gospels, being set free and being like, he said what he said. You know, he meant what he said. It's pretty straightforward. And a child can receive it and just say, yes, Dad, without complicating it. The faith of a child that we've been taught to have and to, to live in the humility of a child. When, when, you, when you go there and stop relying on yourself and your own wisdom, etc., you can just say, yeah, Dad. Sounds good, Dad. I don't get it all, but that sounded good. And I'm going to take that piece that I got and that piece that you just gave me and rejoice. So as we heard in Pastor's Analogy on Sunday, godly perspective sets us free. It's like the little boy who was struggling to push a patrol boat through a dirt pile. And once he was taught about his true purpose, he was able to enjoy the seamless elegance of it floating across the water. I mean, get the visual there. Get, make that visual. Picture that scene. Picture the difference between pushing something through the dirt and then letting something float. And that's, that's the type of perspective he's trying to give us about the gospel. It's that simple. It's that free. Many people today, 
uh, Christians included, are trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. It's all about them. Uh, they, they want to establish some kind of position maybe in the church or among those around them. And so they try to make it more complicated, etc. Only humility can take them out of that. That's what we've been learning, right? Humility is the key to the spiritual life. Only humility, only bowing before the Lord can take us out of that. And just simply seeking His way with an honest heart. That gives you the right perspective. And that Jesus' words are not complicated. Jesus' own words are not complicated. They're not uh, to be over-examined, but instead accepted by faith. Is that so hard? I mean, it's hard because we don't want to put, a fly to our, our, put aside our fleshly arrogance. We want to figure something out that's maybe not even there so we can impress people. Who knows why we do things? We're so sick in the head sometimes, right? But if we just get out of the way and, and be humble before him and embrace it and have joy, that's how it's meant to be, folks. That's what we're learning. So on the board, regarding perspective, there's a huge difference between a person who's misappropriating their time on earth and someone who has found their calling in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love that phrase, uh, misappropriating, if I could say it, their time on earth. That's a good way to put it. For most people, the majority of people, even, even Christians, where's their time go? Doesn't it go towards self? Doesn't in some way doesn't it go towards self or maintaining something or earning one's way with God, etc. But you'll be set free when you find your calling in the gospel. That's how it's meant to be. We now know our purpose of living for others and living out the Great Commission. And that we get to participate in it in whatever way the Lord individually inspires us. And just think about the fact that we get to participate in it. Who are we to participate in? Don't don't miss that point. I think right now of the apostles, I think of these men who were uneducated that the Lord called, and they followed him. I think of Philip, the evangelist, who went out to meet the, um, the Ethiopian, right? on the road to Gaza. All, all he did was say, I'm elated to be saved. Lord, use me. And the Lord sent them there. Like, there's, there's that, that childlike acceptance of God getting all the glory, God did all the work for me, and that I want to serve this God. And then God uses these people, no matter where they come from, backgrounds. And that's why... You know, we should never be discouraged about ourselves and rejoice that we even get to participate in this thing. He can use you. He can use you. That's crazy. He can use me. It's, it's silly. So regardless of your gifts or your personality, please listen up on this because some of you get down on yourselves because you don't think you can do certain things. Regardless of that, God has a role for each one of us in the Great Commission. He has a role for each one of us in the Great Commission, in reaching out. 
even if it's to bring a cup of cold water to a prophet, even if it's just being there for encouragement, as Barnabas was to Paul. We don't get too many recordings of Barnabas speaking throughout the book of Acts. Yet where would Paul have been without Barnabas, do you think? How much more difficult would his road have been? Would he have gone to certain places? Who knows? But do you see the role that a person like that had? Everyone's got a role in the Great Commission. Not just in, you know, serving the local church, but in the gospel. So here's a perspective we can all embrace, I hope, uh, even if we feel insufficient or we think our role is not so important. And please remember, you have no idea the power of encouragement. You have no idea the power of just being there for somebody. Maybe you do. Maybe you've experienced it enough where someone was there for you. Or, but I'm not, I'm not talking about doing something for somebody or, or with somebody. I'm talking about just being there. Maybe you don't say a word. Maybe you don't do a thing, but the thing you're doing is being there as an encouragement for someone else. Do you have any idea where that, where that goes, how far that goes for somebody else who might be struggling at times spiritually, who's trying to reach out maybe in the gospel? with the gospel? Don't underestimate the power of encouragement. Your actions can speak a thousand words to your fellow evangelists and to those watching and listening to the gospel. Why do you think the Lord sent people out in twos? Go to uh, Matthew 10, verse 40 in your Bibles. Matthew 10, 40. Let's see the Lord's perspective on this. And we're all called to do different things or, you know, function or operate in a different way. But it's all part of spreading the gospel in some way, or it should be. Matthew 10, 40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. So there's a perspective. For those of you that are, whatever, down on yourselves that think, you know, you're not, you, you can't picture it being involved in spreading the gospel. But we all got a job to do. So the point is we all have an important role in the gospel, regardless of what our gifts might be called. And as we were reminded on Sunday, our calling is as simple as serving one another through love. Can you serve somebody else? I don't care how unable you think you are or how ill-equipped you think you are or what your weaknesses are you think can you serve somebody can you serve somebody a cup of cold water well you my friend have no excuse now that might be your role in a certain way that might be your calling 
I'll tell you that thirsty person is very grateful. Or maybe speaking all the time like Paul. You know, and he's dying. Nobody knows it. There's so much that goes on, like behind the scenes, in someone's soul. And just you being there might make all the difference. And this, this is coming up, I think, because we're realizing how important, um, how singular, again, our purpose is to live in the Great Commission. Cut out a lot of the, the slack that you've been adding or thing, things you've even been allowing to sneak in as an excuse so you don't have to be involved in the Great Commission. We reminded on Sunday, again, our calling is as simple as serving one another through love. Go to uh, Galatians 3, th- uh, go to Galatians 5, 13. Galatians 5, 13. Simple. Pure. If children can do it, then you can do it. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Does it get any more concise than that? Stop making excuses. (laughs) Stop trying to complicate it. With humility... One can live in the freedom and singular purpose of Jesus Christ. The simple, we might even say, have an advantage, potentially, as they don't get caught up in intellectualizing everything. If you don't consider yourself intelligent, you may want to to pause and thank God for that, because that could very well be an advantage. As Scripture tells us, there are not many wise, not many noble, and there, therefore, All the glory goes to God. But it takes humility to step back and accept this and even enjoy it. Even enjoy it. How about thanking God for the areas you're not too swift in? Enjoy it. Embrace it. Because you know what? All the boasting has to go to Him. And that's the position you want to be in. That's why our weaknesses are so valuable, whatever our, our weakness might be. So on the board, uh, rejoice in simplicity. We can take joy because as we humbly read the word, we discover it's not all about us. It's not about us discovering new revelations, but it's about obeying and following the only pure one and his objective in life, which was to seek and to save the lost. Anyone can do that if they're willing if they're humble, if they're willing to get out of the way instead of making an issue out of themselves and trying to hold on to some kind of status or position. Again, on the board, rejoice in simplicity. Thank God it's so simple. Thank God. Because it could have been a lot worse. (laughs) I mean, like, again, God being so brilliant who he is, he could have made it a a lot more complicated if he wanted to. But he's a God of grace and love and mercy. We can take joy because as we humbly read the word, we discover it's not all about us. It's not about discovering new revelations, but it's about obeying and following the only pure one that ever lived and follow his purpose. 
to seek and save. Another vein from Sunday's message was a reminder that not all Christians see this, if they're saved at all. This point on the board, this, this principle, uh, this simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Not a lot of Christians see this if they're saved at all. They're often caught up in living for self or making religion all about them and earning their way with God. It's not about surrender to them, in other words, but it's more about establishing one's own position and goals, which is really the opposite of surrender. In short, they're trapped in false humility, even deceiving themselves. So this is the battle we've been fighting. This is what the Spirit's alerting us to. He's like, don't, just because someone calls themselves a Christian, don't assume that they're, that they're saved even. Or don't assume that they're on the right track. They might be totally on the wrong track. On the board, false humility in the churches. This idea of living for others by spreading the gospel is something that is completely foreign to today's falsely professing Christian. This isn't happening in all churches, but it's happening in some churches. Too many, plenty churches. Spreading the gospel, living for others, that's totally foreign. It's more about going in there and gaining something for self, feeling better. We talked about this in the past, gaining business contacts finding a mate. That's why people are are going to church, some people. Who knows if they're even saved? And if they're saved, they obviously have the wrong priority. There's a lot of false humility out there. False humility bows to the Lord. uh, I'm sorry, did I get that right? True humility bows to the Lord. False humility bows to self. And they can be in the church physically and play the role but they're bowing to self, worshiping self. On the board, humility, like grace, mercy, and love, etc., has been perverted into something that isn't even in the Bible. And the question came up on Sunday, how many so-called Christians are actively living for others right now? How many are actively pursuing a life of putting others ahead of themselves? How many are actively following Jesus in some way. Like Jesus said, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. How many quote-unquote Christians are, are actively living this way? And if they're not living this way at all, what's up? Where do they stand in their heart? God looks at the heart, right? That's what's scary about this. There's a lot of quote-unquote religion that people are content in because they don't have to lose self. It's really a heart issue again. But the fact is many of these people want to live in a lie to keep their little religion so they can be self-serving. On the board, regarding false humility, most people have very little respect for Jesus. I mean, you look at that and you say, is that true, really? Well, I have to personally agree when I think about all the churches out there that use his name but don't preach his word, that say there's other ways to go to heaven, when Jesus clearly said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that, like there's so much, um, there's so many quote unquote different Jesuses out there. 
So the true Jesus, there's very little respect for him. They often treat him like a poor little sap that's pining over them like a love-stricken fool. Yet he's the sovereign God of the universe who demands respect in every way. In a way, they want the grace without the truth. They want the quote-unquote good parts of Jesus without the direct statements of the truth that he made over and over and over and over. But they don't want to read those. People get set in their ways to satisfy certain requirements in their mind or to satisfy certain people in their lives. And those are, that's what we call religion. And many have not surrendered to Christ as their Lord and Savior. So, on the board, if the whole reason you're supposedly living for others is so that you can tell the world about it, you're missing the point. In fact, that's not true humility at all, rather false humility. Arrogance cloaked in a thin veil of something that looks like humility. And the flesh is so good at this that you, you'll even not know who the wheat and the tares are in a, in a situation within the church. Uh, the flesh is so good at this, it's, it's crazy. And that's why without surrender, God can't do anything in somebody. Once somebody surrenders, he can then change them. They need God to change them. They can't change themselves. And Jesus did not accept this kind of pseudo-humility. In fact, he called it out. He called it out because he loved people. Like in Matthew 6.1 on the board, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. He called it out, and he went on in that passage too. You're going to let someone be deceived, or are you going to speak the truth in love again? And then we took another turn on Sunday where the Spirit started to bring all these things together that we've been talking about. And he's even making it simpler and simpler for us, more concise, more uh, peaceful, really. And maybe things that were first a struggle in our souls become blended together perfectly. I just really enjoyed Sunday's message. I hope you did, and if you didn't listen, I hope you listen. Humility, mercy, and repentance. These are the three things that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Philippians 2.3, regard one another as more important than yourselves. There's a great picture of humility. Romans 9.18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires. We talked about mercy as God's prerogative. It's not even his obligation. He has the right. He's the innocent one, we're the guilty ones. And he has mercy on whom he desires in his sovereign wisdom. And then Luke 15, 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So stepping back, this is where we started with in the message tonight when we began, stepping back, keeping the big picture in view, this is what God's plan looks like. We could say, rightly, the things on the board, this is a snapshot of what God's plan looks like. It's not complicated, and it all blends together perfectly well. And it's something that can be understood with the faith of a child. It's meant to be understood that way, in fact. The so-called wise will not get it. Remember what Jesus said to the 70 disciples when they returned from their mission. 
And there's a tendency for us to see them as, quote-unquote, great believers who perform signs and wonders, even. And we might even be jealous of them if we're not careful. Oh, I'd like to do that, you know. Or, God, give me that power, that gift, whatever. That's what the flesh tends to say. But turn to Luke 10, verse 21. And let's see what the Lord said about the 70 disciples when they returned from this great mission they went on, and they did great, wonderful works of God, even healing people. Let's see what the Lord said about them. Luke 10, 21. At that very time, he, Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Who does he will to reveal him to? Infants. He called the 70 disciples that came back from these marvelous works of God done in obedience, infants. They were willingly humble, simple even. Maybe it's time we ought to start looking at this type of uh, viewpoint, even being called an infant. Maybe we should look at that as a compliment instead of letting our flesh fight against it to try to hold on to some creature credit, to try to have a certain... Hold on to a position. Who knows what's going on in our crazy souls? But this was a compliment. The Lord called them infants. The world doesn't look at that as a compliment, right? The world says, "Who are you calling an infant?" Right? Who are you calling simple? Where in God's eyes, it's quite different. So on the board, we saw this on Sunday, all coming together: humility, mercy, and repentance. A humble person repents and receives mercy. Was that too simple? That's God's salvation. It's not, it's not difficult whatsoever. We aren't to cut parts out of it, like humility, like repentance, like some churches do, but this is as simple as it gets. And it's right in line with how God designed the human race and how he gave children and parents. It's right in line. It's like this is how life works. I'm going to show you just by life happening around you and and in your own houses. God's plan for man, God's way of salvation. Now picture this in your head, okay? Get a visual. God's plan for salvation for man is as simple as a child running to him in humility. That's what God's looking for. It doesn't get any simpler than that. That's salvation. That's a humble person repenting and receiving mercy. The Lord did all the work at the cross, granting forgiveness to all who repent and believe in him. And while it's so simple, it's simple because of his incredibly difficult work that he did. On the board, we saw this on Sunday also. 
Simplicity ought never to be misconstrued as easy. The cost is very high, and the gate is narrow that leads to life. It just is. While God saves by grace, there are absolute constraints. It's not some, like, free-for-all. He demands that people repent, for example. Only the humble person receives forgiveness. It's super simple, but for some people, they choose to stay in their arrogance, and it's difficult for them, not quote-unquote easy. If we bring it down to where the rubber meets the road, we saw this on Sunday also, humility accepts whatever terms the sovereign God of the universe presents unto salvation. That's what humility does. If God says jump, you say how high. That's humility. If God says to be saved, you need to repent and trust me to save you, then that's what a humble person will do because they realize they can't save themselves. They've surrendered to the Lord. They've bowed before him. They realize and recognize who he is. So whatever he says to do, they do if they're humble. But here's a big lie that has grown over time. And I don't know if, I don't know if um, a lot of people realize this, a lot of Christians realize this, what's going on in a lot of churches, even all over the country, but even in our local area. I don't know if you realize what a lot of these certain denominations believe in their doctrinal statements, even though they call themselves Christian. You might look some of them up <clears throat> and see what they believe because there might be a tendency for you to think pastors over overdoing it. All right, like, is it really this bad in the churches? Do they really teach this? How many churches really teach this, right? And you'd be shocked because this big lie that we're about to go over has grown slowly over time. And that's how Satan works. He erodes things from, from the inside, the inside agent in the churches. He'll get agents going in there and spreading lies. And over time, these things have taken place, even over the last few decades in our precious country. So that now churches accept watered-down gospels, and they even take Jesus out as the way. This is actually happening in a lot of Christian churches. You might not believe it because you're spoiled. You're spoiled with a church and a pastor that, that stays dedicated to the word and doesn't stray from the word. But what's going on out there is pretty crazy. It's not Christianity. So they'll, they'll come up with different versions of the gospel and they'll take Jesus out as the only way, even though he said he was the way. And they call themselves Christians. If anything, some of these churches should change their names or change their affiliations because it's not accurate. They don't even stick up for Christ. So here's the big lie on the board that, that we're reminded of on Sunday. God is so gracious and merciful. I speak with perverted definitions. He's so gracious and merciful that he saves everyone, even those who believe in a different God than the one who became a man and died on his cross. There are churches that believe this, that have a cross on the top. How did they get there? Satan's done a great job of infiltrating. So our job, stick up for Christ. 
and look out for people that are under deception and maybe alert them. We ought not accept such foul definitions in favor of biblical truth and plainly stated doctrine in his divinely inspired word. Don't compromise. Don't accept these things, especially if you find out. You know, you might you might learn about uh, what a certain denomination believes. You might look it up online when you see a certain name of a church, right? If you want to, you know, listen, if you want to spread the gospel, it's going to take an investment. And that might be part of the investment. Like, what do these people believe? Or I just learned my friend goes to this universalist church over there. What do they believe? What does that mean? Am I taking for granted that they're good? You might be. And you might look up the definition or their beliefs. And now you're equipped better to expose a lie. That, that might be part of your job and your calling at certain points in your life at least. So we should do as pastor does, which is to remain righteously indignant regarding attacks on our Lord's gospel. That's what we all should be doing. We all should have that displeasure, that unsettled feeling, that uh, healthy, righteous indignation towards a lie about the way. And this includes representing the honesty of our Lord's own words in the four Gospels, even though they're challenging to the religious and the willfully ignorant. We've got to stand up for truth. We've got to stand up for his words. His words are being taken out of the Gospel as though it didn't come from him. So we have to be honest, like Jesus, full of grace and truth. In John 10:1, he was honest. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. You're not going to be popular when you tell the truth like this. You're not going to be popular when you tell your friend, you know, not everyone in the church is a sheep. And some people in your church, maybe, are trying to find another way in, and Jesus called them a thief and a robber. And you might have to bring that up to somebody when you learn what they believe, for example. You're not going to be popular, but Jesus loved enough to tell the truth like this. As also came up on Sunday, the Lord's message is so simple and direct and pure that even a so-called uneducated person can understand the gospel and read the Bible in peace. And that's a miracle, really, that anybody, regardless of education and background even, can read the Bible in peace if they're humble. And again, it's because our God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. 1 Corinthians 14.33 so if something is, is regularly confusing to you, you probably have the wrong perspective about it. You're probably going at it the wrong way. Maybe you need to humble yourself before the Lord and stop intellectualizing. But we were all meant and even designed to understand and follow the clear message of Jesus Christ. And when the humble repent and turn to Christ for mercy, they're given a new spirit, and the ability to understand spiritual things. A child, folks, a child. He called children to himself, right? 
You're not going to enter in at all unless you become like this child. That means it's very doable. It just means someone's in the way. They haven't repented. God equips his own to enjoy his plan. So if you're still complicating it, stop doing that. Stop, uh, compli- stop, stop adding to it. Stop trying to make it complex. For whatever reason, you're trying to make it complex. When Jesus came to seek and save the lost, he called for repentance and faith. His primary mission on the board, this came up on Sunday too, as we noted with the three parables in Luke 15 about the coin, the sheep, and the prodigal son, it makes perfect sense that Jesus' primary ministerial mission was to simply present the gospel. There's more joy in heaven over one person that repents than over 99 who need no repentance. So simple. Consider this. How did the Lord spend most of his time on earth? Did he not simply lay down his life for others, both in reaching out to unbelievers and in serving his own followers? Isn't that how he lived? Is there anything simpler and um, a, a better example to follow? Not complicated whatsoever. But most Christians even pervert the Lord's definitions. They pervert grace and they shut out truth. They're like, I'm going to take grace my way. I like the grace thing. I'm going to take what I like about that. I'm going to say it's for everybody, even though it's not for everybody, if people stay arrogant against the Lord. And then I'm going to block out the truth, such as that Jesus is the only way. Let's not, let's not get crazy here. Let's not, you know, exclude people. That would be me. Make, talk about making up your own gospel, making up your own Jesus. And, it, you know, it comes back to um, people don't want to admit that they're totally depraved. People don't want to admit that they're a wretched sinner compared to God, and they've offended God. <clears throat> so to get around that or to block that out, Let's pervert definitions and make our own religion out of this thing. So we're comfortable. We don't get, you know, offended, uncomfortable. But that, this is what true evil looks like, which was mentioned on Sunday. Doing these kinds of things in the name of good and bringing people into those churches and saying, you know what, just come on in. If you don't believe in Jesus, that's all right. Just come on in. We accept everybody. God accepts everybody as though a man can earn salvation with God, as though a man can satisfy God's perfect righteousness. Go again to Galatians 1, verse 6. As we begin to close, Galatians 1, 6. People have, like, molded Jesus into another God. They've, they've totally made a different God out of him, shaped him so to speak, differently, as though he were clay. Galatians 1.6 I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. It was the same back then. Maybe different ways or different emphasis, but we saw the Greek word for distort on the board from metastrepho, which means to turn something into its opposite, 
by adding moral law to the gospel, false teachers effectively destroy God's grace and mercy, turning the message of unmerited favor into merited, earned favor. That's the main way this is done. You're not that bad a person. You're not totally depraved. Come on in. We'll accept you, and you can be good enough on your own. That's the, if not direct verbal message, that's the message. Galatians 1.8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a, a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, and so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. At this point, allow me to close today with something that has been mentioned a couple times now in the last couple weeks and has been on my heart. As Pastor put it once, we have a problem with the arrogant, not with the broken. We've been trying to dispel lies and misconceptions and bad definitions. But these difficult teachings are not against the man who is beating his breast, reaching out for God's mercy. It's with the arrogant that want their own predetermined plan and with those who refuse to drop their own agenda in life. That's where our, our fight lies, and that's, that's why these teachings are coming forth. So on the board, a few points about this. Our fight is with those arrogant enough to skew the gospel to fit themselves. But if you've surrendered to the Lord, you shouldn't be doubting your salvation. If you know you've repented towards God and you've humbly turned to Christ to save you, you can rest in the peace of God. Just read Romans 5. Because that's what God is after, our hearts. Again, if you've surrendered, if you've repented toward God and you've turned to Christ in humility, you've done what God's looking for. You've turned to Him from the heart, not just from lip service or a mental assent. So on the board, these difficult lessons are for those who are staying on the fence, playing with the fire of religion, and redefining salvation to their own liking so they can stay in their self-life. That's what this, this, who this is targeted at. And also to prepare us as evangelists. But the people that are doing these things, that are staying on the fence, trying to play both sides, that aren't, that refuse to surrender to the Lord, where's their heart at? Is it with self or with Christ? That's, that's what we're trying to get to the root of, where a lot of religious people don't want to go there. They turn a blind eye to it as though it's not real, or as though he's not real. So this is what these difficult lessons have really been all about. For those of us who believe in Christ and have been changed, we have a new perspective. We have the freedom of knowing our good and pure purpose in life too. We have the freedom of being set free by Christ and we have the freedom of living like Christ in his mission to seek and save. And we should re just rejoice in that. 
and desire to do as well. So let me close with a perspective that might help with your single-minded purpose. It's something I shared on a, a social media site recently in hopes of waking up some old friends and maybe some professing Christians. This life is not about this life, but the next. We get so myopic, and we think that this life not only is about us, but it's about this life. And the fact is, we're here for God, and therefore we're here for others. We are His creation, here for His purposes, here to spread His good news to a lost and dying world. Simple. Cut to the chase. So what are we doing with our lives? Let us challenge ourselves with that. Are we living this life as though it's about this life? Or about the next? We're to serve one another. We're to live in the Great Commission, reaching out to unbelievers. We're also to stir up one another towards good deeds. That's one reason we gather together. In fact, it's in the same passage in context. We are to stir up one another to do good deeds for Christ. Encouragement, remember our encouragement came up earlier? Don't underestimate that. This is how God designed us to live as a unit, as a body. And we need each other. And when we stick together like that, when we realize this is part of our very purpose, if, if our purpose is to live in the Great Commission, shouldn't we like be inspiring one another to do so, encouraging one another to do so, prodding one another to do so, maybe? Maybe operating in twos? Maybe when you know someone's alone in something? Maybe encouraging others to take a step forward in their evangelism? Like, for example, uh, Todd, I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, but he's thinking about starting a Bible study in a local nursing home. Why not? And my question might be, who's going with them? Not to teach, but who's going to be there, just be there? Like, and why, why aren't we encouraging one another to do these kind of things? Maybe, maybe some of you are. But why aren't we like looking for these things and being like, what are you going to do? I don't, know what I'm gonna, I don't think I can do this on my own. You want to come with me? You know what I mean? Like, this is what we're here for. This is exactly how we're, we're supposed to gel together, and we can't do it on our own. We've been designed to do it together. So, you know, open up your hearts and minds and realize we're here to stir up one another. Some of you are very happy with that, right? You love stirring up one another. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 on the board in the New King James. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. You see how they're directly tied? Why do we gather together? That's one reason. Because you stay at home, introspective and selfish and lonely or whatever you get when you're alone too much, guess what? You're not going to do this. You're not going to go out. You're going to be caught by your flesh. But when you're gathering together like this, it's such an opportunity to encourage and stir up one another. Again, let us consider one another 
in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Folks, we might, you know, we might only have a few days left. We don't, we don't know. And, and especially living, looking at the times we live in. So what are we doing? How many more opportunities do we have to live in the Great Commission somehow? Whether it's you bringing the cup of cold water or you doing the speaking or you sitting there and just being there as a witness. Time is short, but we can live in the now. How do you live in the now? Live in the gospel call. Make that your reality to seek and to save. And we should do this together. Together. Why don't you pray about... And I'm not saying some of you don't, but I'm sure some of you don't. (laughs) That came out good. Some do, some don't. I know not everybody does. Why don't you pray about ways that you can get involved in the Great Commission, even though you might be scared to death? You can't speak. You don't have to speak. How, how are you supposed to function together with somebody else? Pray about that so that you can make some disciples with someone else. You're not alone. To the obedience of Christ. The Lord's coming back very soon. We're going to see him face to face. And again on the board, this life is not about this life. It's about the next. So if we live in the now, in this way, in his way, in the way, Jesus Christ, if we live in the now, we're going to have no regrets when we see our Lord and Savior. So I hope you all go home and pray about that because the time is short. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for this uh, privilege and this wake-up call to not only embrace the simplicity and purity of your plan and your gospel, but also to challenge ourselves with who we're living for and whose kingdom we're living for. Father, we're so grateful for your word and the honesty of your spirit and the honesty of Jesus' own words. We ask, Father, that you help us simply obey with the faith of a child. We need your help to do this. We need more faith, and we need you to teach us humility. And we thank you in advance for answering our prayers. We want to be part of your kingdom. We want to be part of building your kingdom. We ask that you open up our eyes and open up ways and avenues that you want us to be used in whatever fashion, towards the Great Commission. Father, we ask all these things based on the merits of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. Thank you.